You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome back to all of our ICC friends and family. Annie Mitchell. We're back at it again here, the second week, being back together since the Feast of Christmas and and uh, Epiphany, Theophany, and all that business. Yeah, it's good to see you again, Father Hezekiah. Are well, you in another undisclosed location? I am in an, I, exactly. No, what happened this week was I, I lost all my uh, intelligence, which there wasn't much. <laughs> you have no books. I always have books behind me so that everybody knows. No. <laughs> I'm moving my office currently. So nice. we're taking a week of moving, and this is what it looks like when I move, which means that I'm a blank slate. I have not, so you can just turn this video off. You don't have to watch this. We're not going to do a Sunday golf reflection. <laughs> no, just here we are with a white background and hopefully not a whitewashed um, commentary here on the scriptures as we look at the third Sunday in Ordinary Time, a theme of repentance and faith. The theme of the presence of the kingdom of God, um, and uh, starting out with an unusual reading that we get. I'm so happy to get it, although it throws us right back into the same time frame that we're always talking about, and that's the time frame of the Babylonian exile. But this is pre-exilic, and it gets us into an area that we don't usually talk about all that much, and that is the north. Yeah. And so let's go ahead. Jonah. Yeah. Jonah, right? Book of the prophet Jonah this weekend, uh, chapter three, verses one through five, and then verse 10. Yes, but But. last week we made a commitment to you, our ICC family, that we're not skipping verses anymore. Not that the lectionary is wrong for doing it, but that what what one of our primary goals of doing something off reflections is not necessarily actually to give you a reflection on the gospel as much as is to make sure that we have the tools needed for you to be able to, you know, suck oil out of the hardest stone. St. Irenaeus says, St. Irenaeus, right? I'm pretty sure. Anyways, and so one of those things is just opening our Bibles and just doing it, you know, and reading the scriptures and getting familiar with the text itself. So for our studies moving forward, we're doing the whole text. Yeah. So we're going to go chapter one. What are we at? Chapter chapter three of Jonah, verse one, mm-hmm. and then we're actually going to go through verse ten, straight through to ten, straight through. Verse this 10. might come back to haunt us if they. It's going to come back like to us. entire chapters. Yeah, the passion narrative will be like, oh, just read the whole gospel, all four of them. Yeah, we're going to okay. take the whole time just reading the scripture, but that's not yeah. a bad thing. Okay, uh, so Jonah three. Yes, and um, then the responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm twenty-five. Mm-hmm. The epistle is Saint Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter seven, verses twenty-nine through thirty-one. 
And the gospel for this weekend is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. And of course, we flip them in our in our reflections. We always do the gospel first because it's giving us an accounting of the life of Christ, whereas the epistles are uh, reflecting upon the life of the early church. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I went in the wrong That's order. Okay. That's okay. My That's own. what we do. But we do it. That's why we do it. Yeah. But, you know, whatever the case may be, we're going to go to Jonah. And I'm going to tell you, don't, don't, stop, stop, stop. Don't turn to your table of contents. Oh, I was just going to use my little markers. Oh, those are even worse. If you have markers, I don't you have rip them I out. I don't have them. No, I know Jonah's hard to get to, guys. But that's a short book. But you know, again, is Jonah a long book, Annie? Is it one of the longer of the prophets? One of the shorter of the prophets? I would say it's shorter. I'm yeah, already. Yeah. So what here you're going to do? Like two and a half pages. Exactly. So you're going to go in your prophets are lined up in your Bible for the most part, not exactly, but for the most part, according to length. So you get your major prophets, major prophets like Isaiah and really long. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, oh, you whittle your way down until you get to guys like Obadiah, you know, or Amos. And you're like, what in the world? Well, those are great prophets because they're so consumable. They're so easy. You know, to be honest with you, um, as I was preparing to be to for our study, I sat my kids down and we read over the story of the prophet Jonah together. Nice. And so, in order to do that, you got to be able to flip open your eyes. Don't go to your table of contents right now. ICC family, just as I seen last week, just as I'm saying this week, it's all about the tools. So it's the shorter, so it's gonna be toward your New Testament. So you're going to go, it depends on how your Bible's laid out. But if you have an, uh, an RSV, sometimes your new Americans will go stick all your historical books to, back together. So they'll put first and, first and second Maccabees, usually after what? After Nehemiah, I think they stick them in there. Mm -hmm. um, but but for the rest of us, um, most likely, you're going to find the prophet Jonah before Maccabees. Um, and then you're going to kind of just work your way back and you're not going to have to work very far because you're going to find Zechariah, you're going to find Nahum, Micah, you're going to find Jonah. If you find Amos or Obadiah, you've gone, you're, you're, you're too far back. You got to go forward a little bit. It's right in there. So just keep flipping. Flip, flip, do it right now. Here we go. Find your Bible. Here we go. Open your Bible, find your books. And if you're on your stupid cell phone, get rid of the stupid phone and get out the smart book. Yeah. That's my spiritual advice for you. Ixnay on the phone and get out a real Bible and open up here to the book of the prophet Jonah. And now you're going to take a pen. Well, I'm going to give you something to write into your Bible in just a second, but we're going to read the text first. So oh, we're okay. going to look at Jonah chapter three, verses one, and we're going to read through verse 10. And yes. Okay. So now you've probably found it, right? Because I filibustered a little bit, gave you guys time to find it. You probably found it. If you're still kind of heart searching, keep searching right in there. Just pause. Not too far back from you can pause the video. Exactly. Okay. Here we are. Jonah, okay. chapter three, starting with verse All one. Right, go ahead, Amy. Go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was ex an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. 
And he, and he cried, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Sadly, we skipped the part about Jonah being angry about that, which I always yeah. think is such an interesting part of this story. But let's get our bearings with Jonah first. Okay. Um, what do we need to know about him? You you mentioned okay. already he's pre-exilic. So yes, he is. He again, we go back to context. Always get our brain. So if, if I become repetitive in these studies, it's only because well, it's just you know, repetition is the mother of learning, right? You got to go back and constantly remind yourself where you're at. In this whole story. So remember, if you flip your Bibles back, keep your hand in Jonah. Just flip with me really quick, or write this down. But I suggest you flip over so you get familiar, just comfortable flipping your Bibles easily, right? So um, and that is to First Kings chapter um uh chapter 10 and chapter 12 in chapter sorry chapter 10 chapter 12 chapter 10 sorry chapter 11 chapter 10 11 and 12 yeah but in chapter 12 you get the crisis which takes place and that is that the son of solomon uh the son of solomon that is rehoboam ends up being a very bad guy and in ver in chapter 12, verse 6 and following, right there, you'll see King Rehoboam mm -hmm. ends up causing a schism in the 12 tribes. Ten of the tribes, the northern ten tribes, break from the king um, because he, well, because basically Solomon himself had enslaved his brother. As you'll see in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 28, and... Um, his brother, meaning the tribes, right? So the, the tribe of Joseph, he ends up enslaving them. And he taxes the people. As you're going to see in chapter 12, verse 6 and following, he taxed the people heavily in order to build the temple. And his son, Rehoboam, doubles down in those verses on what his father had done and causes the north to say, uh, chapter 12, verse 16, and when all Israel saw the king did not hearken to them, the people answered the king, what portion have we with David? That's the throne of David, right? In Judah, in Jerusalem. To your tents, O Israel. I'm doing that from memory. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. What inheritance do we have in the sons of Jesse? To your tents, O Israel. So now with the schism, the northern ten tribes become known as Israel and the southern tribe, which is Judah and Benjamin. But by that time, Benjamin swallowed up. You have Judah in the south. That's where we get the name the Jews from. And the northern ten tribes go and they establish their own throne following a guy with a very similar name to Rehoboam, who was a commander in the 
army of Solomon, and his name is Jeroboam. So you got Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Jeroboam controlling the north, Rehoboam the south, and the north basically becomes just completely pagan. They they end up, as you'll see in chapter 12, verse 28, they end up worshiping two golden calves again. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, nothing new under the sun. And uh, so there you have it. So there you the northern tribes, they break and they become all mixed up, right? They're, they remember worshiping Yahweh, but they can't get to the temple because the temple's in Jerusalem. So they end up kind of in this, this state where they end up becoming um, idol worshipers again. And because of their disobedience, because of their, their schism, they end up having to get thrown out of the father's house. So they can't live in the Holy Land anymore. They're going to go out in, into exile. So this is part of the story of the first exile takes place when the Assyrian army comes in and conquers the north. Of course, the Assyrians themselves are going to be conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to conquer the south. That's Judah in a few years. But for now, the situation is regarding the northern ten tribes and their tension with the Assyrians who march and are going to come. And, the, and so this sets up Jonah because Jonah is living at this time. If you turn your Bible to 2 Kings, and you're going to keep your hand in Jonah, of course, you're going to turn your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 14, which is right where we're at, right? We're, we're looking, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, well, yes, 2 Kings chapter 15, check this out, 15, verse 29, chapter 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, that is the northern tribe, mm -hmm. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon uh, and all these other places, and uh, Gilead and Galilee, all of the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Now stop for a moment. Naphtali, what are your what's going ding 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 in your memory? Because you're gonna hold your hand there right now in Second Kings. You're gonna keep your finger in the prophet Jonah, and you're gonna flip with me. Over to the gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. You're going to get there with me. And I, I know you're holding lost spots in your head. This is what we do. Because at the ICC, that's what we're into. If you don't like it, well, there's a lot of other organizations out there that'll give you the easy road. But if you want the road that leads to paradise, it's a narrow road, my brothers and sisters. And it, and it requires a lot you, of fingers in your Bible. A lot of fingers in your Bible. <laughs> okay. Verse uh, chapter, that's Matthew chapter four. Mm -hmm. Are you there, Annie? I'm there. Verse, Verse 12. Oh, 12. Okay. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. We just saw Galilee in Second Kings, right? Yeah. Leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. That what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's in Isaiah 9. You can write it right in your Bible right there, Isaiah 9. Tore the sea across from the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What? Why is Galilee called of the Gentiles? Um, uh, the people who is in darkness. Why? 
is Galilean darkness. Mm. They have seen, uh, have seen a great light. And for those that send the region of the shadow of death, light is dawn. Why is it that this area is called darkness, the, vow, the shadow of death, all of these things, is because of 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29 and following. And now I'm going to finish by saying Galilee, uh, the land of Naphtali, when I went ding, ding, ding just a second ago in 2 Kings chapter 15. Look at, look at the last part of that verse. This guy that is Pekah, sorry, no, not King, uh, 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 Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, he carried the people captive to Assyria. But before he did this, Jonah was in the land. Okay, and this is where you need to have in your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. So uh, now I, I, I'm holding my Bible between two passages, 2 Kings chapter 14 and the prophet Jonah. And I'm going to take and right next to the title, the prophet Jonah, you see this? Mm -hmm. I wrote in my Bible right there, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 is my reference. Because the first thing you're going to do when you open Jonah is you're going to say, who's Jonah? I want to know who this guy is and why he's doing what he's doing and tells the story. Otherwise, the story seems so ridiculous or stupid. And that's what leads people to say that it's made up because they don't know the context. Because a text without a context is no text at all. Bingo. And here's your context. Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Now, in order to contextualize that verse, actually... You've got to go back and, and ch to chapter 14, verse 1. Okay. In the second year of Joash, the son of jo Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. So there you have your two divisions. After that schism that we saw back in 1 Kings chapter 12, now always the kings are identified in relationship to each other. Yeah. Okay, and here's so now we're into this story in in the divided kingdom, and I'm going to go to verse 17. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Je of Jehoash, ooh, son of Jehoaz. Uh, okay, king of Israel in the north. Now the rest of the deeds of this guy are written in the book and blah da 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 da. da. And verse 25 is where we're at. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamash as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, wow. the son of Amittai. Amittai. So now we know his father's name. Mm -hmm. The prophet who was from Gathifir, which is in Galilee. Mm-hmm. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would not he would he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heavens. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So Jeroboam's a bad guy. This is Jeroboam the second. Is a, is not a good guy, but he still saves them. And Jeroboam the second ends up pushing the borders of Israel back right and pushing assyria back in its in it, but it's gonna it's it's about to die it's a assyria's about to conquer them 
So this is what sets us up for understanding the prophet Jonah, because the number one, the number one hated enemy of Israel at this stage is not Judah in the south. The number one hated adversary, the enemy of Israel, the northern ten tribes, is Assyria. And you know that because right there, about to conquer them. It's just if you if you read the con, you read all these chapters, you're going to see this is the tension going on, and it sets up for Jonah the whole story of Jonah in which Jonah doesn't want to actually go and preach to the Ninevites, right? The Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And which I was going to ask, where is Nineveh? It's the capital city of Assyria. So it stands as like the icon of the enemy of God. And now God says, you prophet Jonah, Prophet of the Most High God. Now, here's, I'm going to give you a job to do, okay? You're going to go to your enemies, and (laughs) you're going to give them a warning that if they don't repent, they're going to die. Now, if you hate your enemy, what are you not going to want to do? You're not going to want to tell them to repent. You're going to want to see fire and brimstone come down from God and decimate these people. So God says, go and warn them. And Jonah says, no, I'm not going to warn them. And so this is sets up the story in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord, you're with me, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Mm-hmm. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. There he is, shows up, right? That we saw yeah. in 2 Kings. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come upon, come up before me. But Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is on the, the western border of, of Spain. So he's going to get on the boat. He's going to get out of Dodge. He's got to get out of there. And he went to, and he went down to Joppa and he found a ship, right? It was Joppa. We're going to pull it up here on the screen. Joppa, as you'll see on the map, right there on the border west of Jerusalem. And it's a coastal city. You can still go to it today although it has been taken by the modern state of Israel from the Palestinian inhabitants that have been there from the beginning and the Christians are suffering. That, my friends, is for another topic. Joppa is right there on the coast and that's why he goes there to get on a boat and and, and sail to, uh, to, to, get, to get away. And then what what proceeds is you know the story of Jonah right Jonah is hiding in the in the belly of the boat and you're going to read that right here in Jonah chapter 1. Uh, the in, in these following verses, verse four, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Okay, verse seven, and the they that is the 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 guys on the boat say to one another, "Come, let's cast cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us." Yeah, and verse nine. And Jonah said to them, "I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land." Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Okay, when they said, and and so forth, right? And then verse 15, so they took up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I love there, that the fish was appointed. <laughs> it was appointed. Nice. It's yeah, a great, that's nice. Great verb. 
Sorry, go on. That's it, Annie. That's your yeah. context. Wow. I mean, it's quite a context. So I guess this makes more sense knowing what um, that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, why the Lord was going to destroy it because they were bad people. They were complete heathens, right? Yeah. But now the Lord is merciful and Jonah doesn't like it, right? So Jonah doesn't want to be in this role of bringing them to repentance because he knows if they repent and they're saved, most likely you people calling me during that Bible study. Um, if, if, um, uh, if, if they repent and saved, that means that the enemy of Israel is still strong. Right. Yeah. And as it turns out, they do repent and they do come down and by the hand of God, remove the people, Israel from the house of the Lord, because the land of God, right? The Holy land, because they're not living in a way that is suitable. And, uh, yeah, there it is. Well, this is very interesting. So how quickly they believe and, you know, this idea of 40 days more and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And then they proclaim a fast. Can you just talk about that for a second? This this link between repentance and fasting? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, let's talk about what repentance is. We often talk about repentance from sin. I repent of my sins, right? Yeah. Well, what is sin? Ultimately, sin is selfishness. Why do I say that? Because God is love. John tells us love is the giving of our life to the beloved is the pouring out of my life to the other. Yeah. And sin is the opposite of that. Sin is not the way of God, if you will, right? Um, and therefore, rather than pouring out, it is always a turning inward, okay? It is the making use of what is a gift from God for my own self-aggrandizement. And therefore, the church in her wisdom, well, God in his wisdom, calls us to repent of this very turning in on ourselves yeah the the consumption of creation uh rather than the gift uh, the 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 act of thanksgiving of of thanksgiving to god and service to one another right rather than love yeah the opposite of love yeah so repentance is tied in our lives as we are physical beings to the detachment from the material thing as an end in itself and the restoration of the material world to its right order toward God, right? In Romans chapter one, I encourage you all to go and read all of chapter one in light of some of the craziness that's going on in the church today. But in Romans chapter one, verse 20, St. Paul says, and I'm going to do, okay, I'm not going to do what I say I should do. So I'm going to have my hand in Jonah. I'm going to flip over to Romans chapter one. And if you're like, I know chapter one, because father, you just always talk about it. That's fine. But you do turn over there because it's just good to turn. Just mm -hmm. good thing to do. Chapter one, verse 20. There you go. Romans chapter one, verse five. That's, that's Romans comes right after Acts of the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. Romans, or Romans chapter one, verse 20. Are you with me, Annie? I'm right there. 
ever since the creation of the world. His invisible nature, name is eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So number one, you know that there's nothing... There's nothing sinful about the created order, right? There's nothing. There's no sinfully delicious chocolate cake, right? That doesn't exist. Um, uh, there's nothing sinful about creation, but what I do with it makes all the difference in the world, right? I can use it to my own ends, or I can make use of it as it's meant, and that is to discover the fingerprint of God and be drawn up to glorify him. Right. And when I'm drawn to glorify him, then all that he's placed in my hands, the created order is used as is meant to be used. And that is to communicate divine life from me to those around me because I'm in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. Okay. So, so fasting and repentance. Fasting restores my relationship with the material world by saying, I'm going to step away from how I normally, uh, normally, how I've become accustomed to using the created order. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say my end, my purpose in life is not about that thing, but about that one. Yeah. And so I set aside that which God has made good for me because I've abused it so oftentimes. So that it can be put back in its proper order. This is why, and we talk about this a lot in the coming weeks and months, but this is why on Easter we all eat meat. Right? Not because, not because uh, you know, oh, we don't have to fast anymore, or oh, not because we because now we get back all the good, all the things we gave up. No, because meat itself is a good. And having gone through this time of repenting of mis misuse, I now can receive it as it's meant to be received and glorify the God of, of heaven who has given it to me as a gift. Yeah. Um, and so repentance and fasting. The, 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 I, think this, I think we need to say something uh, here also about fasting in the church today. I, I, St. John Chrysostom says this about Nineveh. Like a heavenly power overseeing Nineveh's charge, fasting snatched the city from these from these gates of death and returned Nineveh to life. Yeah, I'm going to encourage all of you to read to get a book called Great Lent by Father Alexander Schmemann. Now, a lot of the book of Great Lent is not all that helpful to you because if you're from a Roman Catholic background, this is written in the Orthodox tradition, the Byzantine tradition, according to the all the things of of, um, of Lent, all of the feast days and things which are particular to the Byzantine tradition. However, he's got some gems in there about fasting. It's a great book to have handy, just to return yourself a proper understanding of fasting. But there it is, St. John Chrysostom. Like a heavenly power overseeing Nineveh's charge, fasting snatched the city from these, the, these gates of death and returned Nineveh to life. And, and so the question now comes back to you, Annie, of what is this? What is fasting really necessary? I mean, really, really, we don't have to give up meat and cheese and wine and oil and all these things. That's that's kind of that old timey way of doing it. But we're so enlightened now that we realize that we just have to be nice to people. That's really what God wants from us anyway. So the great so-called wisdom of the father turns out to be foolishness of the apes. No, my favorite really... is 
My yeah. favorite is I'm not all that attached to these things anyway. Right. So I don't have to give them up. Right. <laughs> right. So we're going to go ahead and flip to uh, the words of Jesus now because Father Hezekiah was preaching a word the other day in the church. And I offended one of my parishioners when I said, if you're not, I said, if, if you don't fast, you're not a Christian. Well, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't fasting because he got upset with me. So I'm just going to turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come. The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. That is, the disciples of Jesus will fast. It is one of the marks of the disciple of Jesus. So if you're not fasting, you ain't a disciple. Unless the bridegroom's with you. And he is, and yet, we await the fullness of that revelation, which is why the church, in her wisdom, has always fasted. Always fasted. Because it is a necessary, a necessary prerequisite for the feast, for the presence of the bridegroom. So in times of preparation, during Lent, as we prepare for the bridegroom, right? We prepare for Christ's gift of his life on the cross and his resurrection and his gift to me of his life. In preparation for that, I fast, just as Jesus said I would, right? And by doing that, then coming full circle of what you're asking, Andy, about repentance, full circle, by doing that, I then restore in my life the proper order of my life, recognizing the Lord to whom my life belongs and everything else as in relationship to him as leading me to that reality. Okay. Mm -hmm. There you have it. All right. So why does God repent? I mean, does he really repent here? The it says it's Nineveh that repented. Well, yeah, but it says that God repented of the evil that he had threatened to do them. He did not ah. carry it out. As if God didn't know that he wasn't going to punish Nineveh. I mean, God, they, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, right? Yeah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they returned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them. Well, this is a double problem because so does God, God do evil? Mind? Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah okay i love this this is good these are questions we have to ask ourselves so we have a proper understanding of the scriptures remember that the scriptures are written i wish i could just be like grab my my catechism the catholic church off the, the stand but annie has it right behind her and um and i'm going to ask annie to open up her catechism to the first section of the catechism in which not the first section on the creed, but before that, in on uh, on Scripture and the Word of God, in which he talks about how God makes use of man in the writing of Scripture. Um, and so, Annie's flipping over there right now. He's going to give us our Catechism of the Church paragraph number. Okay, that would be. 
It looks like paragraph 106, perhaps. I think that's about right. Shall I read it to you? Well, read tell it. Me I'll if tell you I got the right, right one. Yeah, yeah tell me ahead. if this is right. All right. God inspired the human authors of the sacred books. To compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who all the while he employed them in this task, made full use of their own faculties and powers so that though that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. And there's the point is that the scriptures are written inspired by God to reveal the truth, but in according to our human capacity to understand. So yeah. you're coming at it from a divine capacity to understand because you have Christian revelation and so you have a little theological training, you're applying St. Thomas Aquinas's insights, <laughs> right? But 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 as the scriptures are written, they're written so that the author can truly say that the sun rises. Yes? Mm, yeah. Um, and and say it truthfully. Right? There's not error in scripture when this when the author says that because he's writing from his perspective. Yeah, he's making full use of, of his capacity to see and understand and speak and put his fingerprint on what he's seen. So there you have it, right? So the 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 idea of the of the that God was gonna do an evil, meaning he's gonna destroy them, right? I mean that's not that's an evil, right? If you understand from a biblical standpoint or from a from a okay, biblical language standpoint, and then and then they're changed. God changed his mind when he was gonna destroy him, and then all of a sudden now he's not gonna destroy him, right? Well, yes, God knew what they were going to do, and yet he allowed for them to make that decision freely, all the while knowing the end. And this is this is a question of God's foreknowledge, which is uh, which is uh, uh, one of those doctrines which is difficult to wrap your mind around. But thank God for the ICC because we have a we have a talk at the Institute by Dr. William Marshner on a Catholic understanding of predestination. Now you're going to say, what? That's for Calvin. Well, yes, but predestination. I'm going to type that into our explore button. Uh, and there you have it. Dr. William Marshner, are you saved? Question mark. The Catholic doctrine of predestination in which Dr. Marshner talks about the foreknowledge of God. You want to go further into that? You're welcome to do so. But that's your simple answer, Annie, to your question. Great. Well, that is all of my questions. Oh, for... but before we move on, I, I got to give you St. Clement of Rome. He says this. Let us, it's an encouraging uh, encouragement regarding scripture, regarding the prophet Jonah and, his, and the role of this story in our spiritual life. Let us look back over all the generations and learn that from generation to generation, the Lord has given an opportunity of repentance to all who would return to him. Noah preached penance, and those who heeded were saved. Then Jonah announced destruction to Nineveh, the Ninevites, and they repented of their sin, besought God in prayer, and estranged though they were from God, obtained salvation. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Look at how God has acted over time. Look at how he has interacted with man. Look at the story of the prophet Jonah and apply it to your own life because the Lord has not changed. No matter how far you are from God, whether you're in, in, in Tarshish or in uh, Nineveh or wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord or away from your walk with the Lord, it's never too far. 
And he gives us an opportunity always for repentance. And I, I just, there was a, I, I was reading the church fathers on this passage and there was a, this beautiful insight, but I not put my finger on it right now. Maybe it's another spot. Basically it says this, no matter how many footsteps you are from God, he's not, he's, he's, he's not far footsteps from you. Kind of an idea, right? Like the prof, the, the uh, prodigal son, right? The prodigal son goes off to a far off land, but then when he repents the, the story immediately, he's, he like, he comes back to the father's home. It's not a long journey, right? That's how the Lord is with us. No matter how far we've gone, no matter what our, our past is, the Lord is always there waiting for our, for our repentance so that we might be restored in our relationship with him and the whole of the created order. All right. Which is why That's the verses of, of Psalm 25 are so beautiful uh, paired with this, with this reading mm -hmm. from Jonah. Teach me your late ways, O Lord. Remember that your compassion, O Lord, and your love are from old. In kindness, remember me because of your goodness, O Lord. Mm. Like, don't forget those ways that you have yeah. and, gave and, others your mercy. And that idea in scripture of remembrance is not as though God is forgotten. It's a matter of representation. That is, to for God to remember, he, it means for him to act, yeah. to be who he is in my life. So calling down God's mercy, just as you were merciful on the Ninevites, just as you were merciful to Jonah. So Lord, be merciful to me, which brings up the last point I have to bring in. We can't let this go because we're going to be talking about the fishermen in a moment. And it just so happens that God is the fisherman who draws Jonah out of the water of yeah. death. But before Annie, we uh, leave Jonah behind us. Uh, we remind, we're reminded that he's never behind us. He's with us because Jesus says, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, let's turn there very quickly. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about Jonah. So right. far from being some fairy tale, Jesus, at least, believes that Jonah really did exist. Chapter 12, what am I looking for here, Annie? Uh, verse 38. Verse 38. There you go. Then, you with me? Annie, yeah. you read it for us. Chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Yeah. So there you, there, there you have it. So, so Jesus says, look, he's why? Because now we're in Matthew chapter 12, which means we're heading to the passion. All of the miracles and stuff, that's all that happened, right? It's Galilean ministry, all of the show, all of the walking on water, the multitudes of loaves and fishes. And now they say, show us a sign, right? Yeah. And then he says, you godless people, <laughs> I haven't heard you all this time. And you haven't seen what I've done. And Nineveh, a pagan society, repented at the, the word of Jonah. 
and I've given you all these signs and it's not enough for you. It was an, if the word of Jonah was enough for them, my word ought to be enough for you. And you're going to hell in a handbasket because it hasn't been enough. Nothing's going to be enough for you people. And so just as Jonah, and they should have known then what Jesus was planning because they were plotting his death. And they should have known what Jesus was planning about their plotting because the Jews understood the prophet Jonah as having gone down into death itself. Yes? Turn back with me to Jonah. Um, look at this. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah 2, 1. You're there. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, is gone from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, or hell, right? So yeah. so, so the, the waters, and this is very important for sacramental theology, the waters themselves become a symbol of death, right? The, the, the sinful man at the time of Noah died in the waters of the flood, the sinful man a time of the Exodus died in the waters of the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, Jonah himself fleeing from God like Adam in the beginning, the fall. So he's cast into those waters of death. And having died to his old self, he comes forth from the, from the waters, from the belly of the fish, from Sheol, from hell. Man restored in the image and likeness of God to go and preach to the Ninevites, to do the will of God in his life. So Jesus is going to go down into Hades and put death to death. He's going to go down into Hades and put the old nature to death, to put Adam, if you will, the fallen Adam to death, that man might rise to a newness of life. This is what Jesus proclaims. So the prophet Jonah is a great symbol of the resurrection of Christ, yeah, a great symbol of coming forth from Hades from Sheol, from death, and coming to the newness of life to do the will of God, to leave behind the old life, which is exactly what our gospel account is all about. All about. Let's what go, a baby. transition, Father has. That was beautiful. Rest. That, that was a. That was a nice transition. Okay, the gospel of Mark. Okay. Mark chapter one verse fourteen is where we're headed. Okay. Matthew, Mark, go. Chapter one. Chapter one, verse fourteen. Here. We verse go. fourteen. Okay, here we go. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked along a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in a boat, mending their nets. Then he called to them. So they left their father Zebedee in the boat, along with the hired men, and followed him. All right. Thanks be to, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. okay. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Um. You know, it just occurred to me, we heard the calling of of Andrew and Simon and John last week, and this sounds a little bit different from what John mm -hmm. was saying. Should What do we make of that? 
Yeah, so I mean, it's important to remember where things go in the gospel. You try to give an account of where Jesus was and what came before and what came after. And if we can do that pretty easily, then you kind of get a sense of where you're at in the gospel. If I was one of I was I was mentioned a Bible study last week that I was at a conference, and one of the cool things I was that one of the professors was teaching at the conference was regarding the multiplication of loaves and fishes in the Gospel of Mark and how John chapter six and the multiplication of the loaves and fishes there. Uh, and then the 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 word of uh, the bread of life discourse in John chapter six kind of falls in between Mark six and Mark eight. So this was cool. It's really helpful to understand the progression of the gospel. And so there's there's a couple of ways that you can do that. The first is that John in his gospel gives us the three Passovers, right, which gives us the kind of three years of Jesus's ministry. The Passover mentioned. Um, if you just flip with me real quick to John. John chapter 2, flip there, because you want to see it. John chapter 2, verse 13. And that's right after the wedding feast at Cana, right? Mm -hmm. Verses 1 yep. through 11. So chapter 13, the Passover. Then in John chapter 6, verse 4. And that's, of course, bread of life discourse stuff, right? Uh, yeah. And then again um, in John chapter 13, okay, which is when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passion. So John gives us these three... Passovers, whereas the synoptics, right? The Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic. Sin is with S Y N with optic, yeah. One eye with one eye. They tend to approach the story of Jesus from the same vantage point, giving some different details, but for the most part, kind of following the same storyline. Whereas John's taking taking a different perspective on the life of Christ, right? F pulling out other stories and looking at differently for a different purpose. Um, but the, the synoptics, Mark being one of them, has this particular vantage point, which is a little bit more, you might call, trying to gain the historical account of the life. Although I don't even like that because John's is historical too, but, but focusing really primarily on the Galilean ministry. And so in order to kind of gain a little closer insight into what we're talking about here when this takes place, just notice a couple of things. Point out a few things, and then I'll let you kind of fill in the, the, the rest. Notice that in Mark chapter 9 and following is the story of the baptism of Christ, okay? Um, in fact, I always do this in my Bible. Wherever the baptism comes up, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a triangle there between spirit in verse in, in this in this case in verse 10 spirit verse 11 voice that's the father Mark chapter one correct sorry what did i say you you're you you keep saying the chat you keep saying chapter but you mean verse so sorry okay mark, mark one, chapter one verse nine verse 10 sorry okay. got it all right got it spirit verse 11 voice and further on verse 11 son so you have the, the the revelation of the of the Trinity there. So that by connecting those three with the line, you're going to see the triangle, and you're going to know baptism, or you're going to highlight it in green. I like to for me, it's new life is green, so I highlight nice. in green. So you always got to have your highlighters handy, guys, right there, right? You got to be able boom or the or purple or whatever the case may be. So so there you have it. There's the baptism, in verse twelve, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness forty days. Right now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? 
And then he calls the disciples. So we're going to hold our hand in our Bible right there. We're going to flip over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, in which we get the baptism of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 31 and following. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. But then in verse 35, you have the calling of the disciples that we looked at last week, right? Yep. And of uh and if I come down to verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak following him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he first found his brother Simon. So now you have two of the characters going to come into the gospel of Mark text that we just looked at. But they're not on Galilee. They're not on the Sea of Galilee right here. They're down with John in the Jordan River where John's baptizing, which is down. Uh, you can go to the location today. It's right near Jericho. Right? I'm going to pull up the map here. Now you see Jericho. That's the spot where the Jordan River, right just north of the Dead Sea, is a place where John was baptizing. So they're, they're at least like a three-day journey in between. You know, I'm making that up. Okay, two and a half days, three and a half days, four days. I got to go walk up there on a bus. It takes a couple of hours. Okay, but they got to go up there now. Galilee, and they're they're where they're fishing. I'm gonna pull up the the image of the Sea of Galilee here, where you can see Capernaum and Tabga. Tabga is the location, the the preferred place of the fishermen because there's a beautiful spring of water. You can see this this picture here. This it's like a it's like a waterfall of water coming out of the side of the hill and literally water falling into the sea. And that's the location where the fishermen fish even today because the water from that spring is a little bit warmer than the sea seawater. And the tilapia and catfish like the warm water. And so they team. I've been there literally in the morning. It's almost scary. And the, the fish are crawling over one another on the surface of the sea. There's so many of them. Remember the nets? The nets were uh, so filled, they started to tear and so forth like that. And they had to get other people to try to bring them into the boat. That's because right there. And you can still see that today. So now going back, though, going back to our timing of where we're at. Notice that in the Gospel of John, John does not have Jesus. He does not account for Jesus going out in the 40 days. Right. right? But gives us a detail that Mark does not give us. And that is that the disciples were first disciples of John down there in the Jordan River. And then they went back up to Galilee to go fishing. Oh. So the, the Mark text is their second calling or third, whatever. They've, they're being called multiple times, which ought to give us hope who have all heard the word of the Lord calling us. And yet we go back to our old life oftentimes, right? So they're going back there in John. And then notice in John, we have the wedding at Cana, which is up. And we're going to pull the map up here again. Cana is over here to the west of the Sea of Galilee, up here near Nazareth. And again, a number of days journey from where the baptism was taking place. So Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the desert. We know the location. We're going to pull up the picture here of the monastery of the temptation on the cliffs overlooking Jericho. It's amazing. You can see where the temptation took place. He then comes down, right? He goes up to Galilee, to Cana, to the wedding. He comes back down to Jerusalem, and in chapter in John chapter 2, verse 13, he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. He then makes his way back up, going through Samaria in chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Yes? 
and ends up now in his in what we might call his Galilean ministry proper, in which he calls the disciples. Now, exactly where the way it kind of fits into this, exactly when the calling happens, a little hard to piece together, but that gives you a general sense, right? The baptism takes place down south, but in Mark, it almost appears as though it's right there on the Sea of Galilee. But it's it there's all this kind of zigzagging that happens, right? down to Jerusalem, or up to Cana, down to Jerusalem, back up to to Capernaum, and that area where the calling happens. Now I'm going back to chapter, Mark chapter one. I hope this is interesting to you guys. I love this I'm stuff because it's fascinated kind of, by this. <laughs> it, it's fascinating. Right. So then he comes back there in verse 16, in Mark chapter one, verse 16, and passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the two guys, he that already they already knew him. They had already spent that come and see, right? That night with the Lord. So it's not as though this crazy guy in the side of the water is like, hey, you, God. No, they already know who the guy is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they're ready. They're ready to follow. They want to follow him. Now, I'm going to tie in one other part of the story that's going to help us kind of get a sense of this thing. And that is that he spends time in here now in chapter 1, verse 32, 33, and 34. Jesus drives out the demons. Mm -hmm. He's in the synagogue in Capernaum. Yeah. Yes. And, and then and then he goes into Peter's house, which is right there. Literally, the, the, the synagogue and Peter's house are like next door neighbors. Okay, he goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law, verse 35. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he heals the leper in verse 40. Mm -hmm. Okay, in verse in chapter two and following, he heals the paralytic. I'm telling you all of this because we get a little indication here that the next stage in his journey in chapter six, verse one. He went away from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, where is his own country? Was well, his own country is Nazareth, where he grew up? Okay, and he and he goes and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "Where did this man get all of this? What is the wisdom given to him? What mighty works are wrought by his hand?" Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Hold this for one second. Okay. And turn your Bible to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. And this is why some of this gets very confusing when you're looking at your Bible, where things fit in. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit 40 days into the wilderness. And now the temptations happen. But in Luke, in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power and spirit into Galilee and reports concerning him went out throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by God. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue, as his custom was in the Sabbath day. And he stood up and he unrolls the scroll, right? We've looked at this so many times. Yeah. And then he closes the book. And then look at what they say. Verse 22. 
And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which he perceived, what perceived him out. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Notice that we just looked at in Mark chapter 6. Mm-hmm. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What, look at this, what we heard you did at Capernaum, what did he do at Capernaum? Well, he healed the demoniac. He healed the, Peter's mother-in-law. All of that is recounted not in Luke, but it's recounted in Mark. And you wouldn't know what he did in Capernaum unless we had Mark to bolster Luke, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's that all that things takes place. So we can say now with, with pretty good confidence. So the, here's how the storyline goes. It gets us now into Mark where we're going to spend our entire year, which is why it's so important that we're spending time here getting our bearings at the beginning of Mark. And that is he's baptized in the Jordan. He's tempted in the desert. Which is recounted in Mark chapter one verse twelve, but then he goes to Cana and Galilee. He goes back to Jerusalem for Passover. He then makes his way to Capernaum, Tabga, calling the apostles here in chapter one verse fourteen of Mark, and then he does all his healings in Capernaum and the surrounding area. And, and, and well, and he goes over to Decapolis on their side, comes back, and then he goes up in Luke chapter four to the synagogue and unrolls the scroll. Wow. Okay. And we know that scroll happens because he said, they say what you did in Capernaum. We know he's already been there. We know he's already done his miracles, right? So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. That is probably way too much information for all of you. But Father has guys is giddy about this because <laughs> I love going to the Holy Land and going and going to these places in order and seeing all that Jesus did and where he went up the Valley of Doves when he walked in this spot. You can like walk on the ground that Jesus walked on. Amazing. Beautiful. Wow. That doesn't sound very... Um streamlined of a trip to the holy land no the icc trip to the holy land is not streamlined let me tell you (laughs) no you don't just fit it all in in one spot we do as best we possibly can as best we can to go to these locations as in order you can't do everything in order but we try as best we can to do it and it really makes a big difference uh, for awesome. seeing what's going on but here we are back in mark chapter one yes okay so back to um Jesus and what he says here. This is the time of fulfillment. So what's the time of fulfillment? The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God that okay. he's talking about here? That's... And also, um, why does that mean that people need to repent? And also, how would the people know what the gospel is if it hasn't been written yet? Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's good. You're you're uh, you're you're damaged by your recent fight with the Jehovah's uh, Witnesses. I can tell it's coming through here, Annie. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, preaching the gospel of God. I love that phrase, the gospel of God, because no one we tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the gospel, of whatever, the gospel of God. Yeah, what is the word gospel means? Good news, good news, the good news of preaching the good news of God. So you're right. Before the gospel is written down, the gospel is proclaimed. And what is that good news? That the kingdom of God is is made present. Yeah, it's not a far off reality in some distant place with, you know, the on the, the Mormon uh, planets out there with a God Zulob or whatever his name. You know, Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus makes the kingdom of God present. 
Because the kingdom of God is God himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living a life of loving communion from all eternity. And now we are invited into this kingdom, into this reality. Yeah, This is the good news, that God is victorious over our enemy who wants to separate us from this reality of the communion of God. And so there it is. It's um, it, it now comes with with a certain understanding of what a kingdom is. I was just preaching this past Sunday on this very point that we are invited by Jesus to become citizens of the kingdom, right? And of course, citizenship brings with it certain rights and certain duties. And this was my example because my parishioners, many of them are from, from uh, Palestine or Syria or that and they're refugees, Christian refugees from Jopa, believe it or not. Yes. Um, and uh they take they, their understanding of, of American citizenship is different than like for me or for, for you, Annie, because we were born, if you will, as American citizens. But they actually had to become citizens, and then certain rights are given to them and certain responsibilities. And the example I used was taxes. I said one of the one of the responsibilities you have is when you come in American citizens, you actually have to pay taxes. Now, all of us are like, ooh, bad taxes, horrible, right? Well, that's because our leaders are stealing our money and wasting it. I'm from California, so I can say this very confidently. <laughs> um, but but uh but but in the proper sense, a proper understanding of taxes. Now, please don't send hate emails to me, those that don't think that the government has a right to tax people. But just take it on its surface level that the government needs money in order to do things for the common good, like pave the roads and put up stoplights. Because if the stoplight's not there and you drive through it and you get hit, you're going to die, right? The government makes sure that that doesn't happen, puts certain safety things in place. The pothole is fixed so that your car doesn't die, right? So you have a certain responsibility. Well, we are called in to be citizens of the kingdom of God in which the laws of God are lived out. The law of God being love God and love your neighbors. Love, there's a lot of law of love, of self-giving love, right? Instead of selfishness, it's self-giving. Sure. Like we talked about earlier, we repent of that other way and now we begin to live this life God is our king and we are citizens of that kingdom. And these duties of the kingdom come with it, namely to offer our, our lives, much like we pay our taxes, in time, talent, and treasure. Yes? Mm -hmm. um, giving of our time, because we understand that time is a gift from God. So we pay a tithe of our time, if you will. We offer the first fruits of our time, if you like that term better than pay a tithe. We offer the first fruits of the token of our, that's why Sunday morning, first thing we do, the first day of the week as the sun rises, we go to church because it's the first portion of our week is dedicated to the most important thing. It's our tithe of our time, right? The day that Jesus rose from the dead, we enter into this communion is the first thing we do each week. Our talent, we offer, we recognize that everything we have in our life, our talents, our gifts that God has given to us are a gift from God and therefore to be used in his service. Um, and our treasure that um, in the Old Testament, 10% of what a person made, if you will, was given back to God as a token that everything was from God. Yeah. And you can look at this in the prophet Malachi. Um, uh, I was just writing this morning a little 
instruction for my parish on this very point. And I'll just give you, you don't have to turn there right now, write it down, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, about tithing 10%. You don't have to turn there right now, okay? So I don't want to spend too much time, so we got to get back to the gospel text. But this is man now living a life of the Eucharistic life, right? Realizing everything in our life, our time, our talent, our treasure, our whole selves are a gift from God. And the first step to recognize that is to offer thanksgiving back to him. And that is where the tithe comes in, to take the first fruits of that and say, as a token of my realization, to give it back to God. And then to realize that that's only the first token. That's only the first, that's, the, that's my, my anchor, if you will, or my, my stake in the ground of the kingdom. And then from there, everything else is realized in service to God. My whole life, my home, my car, everything is in the service to God. My, my work, everything I do, every word I speak is in the service of the Lord. And that 10% is the first token of that. It's my pledge. My pledge, my pledge is a citizen of the kingdom. Yeah, and this is what we see here going on in the gospel. I spent so much time on it because it sets us up to properly understand what's going on here in the life of the disciples as they're being called by the Lord. So let's spend a couple yeah, of minutes. So let's look at these first citizens that uh, that are called. Why is he choosing fishermen? Well, I can say he's choosing fishermen, much like he chose David, who was a shepherd. Because God is the shepherd of, of, of our souls, right? Solomon, or so David, is chosen because he is likened to God. And God wants him to live out his relationship with, his, with the citizens of, the, of David's kingdom, much like he lived out his life in relationship to his sheep, protecting them, leading them to food, right? Well, guess what we find out about God in our lectionary cycle today? That he's the fisherman which drew Jonah out of the water. Yeah. Yes. And so now he's going to call his disciples because they're fishing. Just like you were doing this, now I'm going to let you do this on a higher level. Not only pull fish out of the water, but pull men out of hell. Right? Pull men out of the, the, the tomb, if you will, that symbolic tomb of the waters. Right? And because they're going to now baptize people. And that's what happens us in baptism. We die with Christ in baptism. In Romans chapter 6, St. Paul tells us, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and following, you can read that. It's, and that's what the, the life of the apostles is going to be all about. Cool. All right. So are we supposed to imitate their response here? I mean, they just abandon their jobs. Yes. Go off with them. They abandon their family. <laughs> am I am I supposed to just yeah, you know right? That's pick right. Up and that's leave right. my whole family here to, and uh, and Walk just go follow a, Jesus. Woo! Put on the Birkenstocks, braid yeah, the hair, man. off we go. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm going um, barefoot. Yeah. So my brother, Father Sebastian, likes to point this out, um, and I think he's right for doing so. And that is that in chap Mark chapter three verse verse 7 and following, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, again, we're going to pull up the map here. You see Capernaum. You see the synagogue. You see, well, you see the remnants of the synagogue. You see uh, the location of Peter's house where this church is kind of built over. And you see the sea. It's right there. So he like walks out of Peter's house, makes a left. There's the sea. It's right there. Okay. And a great multitude from Galilee followed also from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from the beyond and beyond the Jordan from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude hearing all that he did came to him 
he told his disciples to have a boat ready for them because of this uh, because of the crowd lest they should crush him for he had healed many so that all who are diseased pressed upon him touch him and whenever and okay verse 13 and he went up into the hills and so forth. Okay, and he's going to go on. He's going to get in a boat. And Okay, look. Did he go and tell them, go and steal the boat? No. Go get a boat ready. Yeah? It, not go rent a boat. Right? They go down and be like, go oh, to the rental place. No. Look, they, when it says they, they, left, they left their stuff, the first thing, and again, my brother's very good at pointing this out, but regarding Zebedee, his father, like, oh, geez, poor Zebedee, abandoned. No, this is, this is Zebedee's, um, it's like me right now with my daughter who's going to be going to college. And you know what she decided? She chose to, she said, I want to go to Thomas Aquinas College. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas College, one of the great Catholic colleges uh, available today. The number of other good colleges, please, I don't want to hate, hate emails from my fellow alumni from Christendom College, but Thomas Aquinas College is one of the great colleges. And my daughter says, I want to go to, Christen, go to TAC, Thomas Aquinas. I said, oh my gosh, thank God. Now she's, you can, she's kind of abandoning us, right? She's, she's flying the coop. She's going. It's the greatest joy of my life to see this happen. Um, and it's the same, I think, for Zebedee. Zebedee was a faithful man, which is why his sons were down with John the Baptist on the Jordan River, right? Go, sons. This is what I've been teaching you all these years. So that at that moment, Zebedee just said, like John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, right? Go. And they just went with him. But far from abandoning Zebedee and far from abandoning their life, notice in Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 30 uh 36 mark chapter 1 verse 29 that jesus goes to simon's house peter's house so like you know they didn't, like torch the house and run right <laughs> yeah they still have their boat they still have their father they still have their mother-in-law they still have their wives so they still have their families it's not a matter of abandoning jesus it's a matter of the time talent and treasure business that now everything that they had became at service to the gospel. The boat is no longer for fishing for fish. It's for fishing for men, which is exactly what Jesus is going to go out and do. He's going to go out and get in that boat and start catching men for the kingdom, right? Throw out the net and catch all this multitude of the kingdom. But he needs the boat for it. He needs the house for the healing, you see? Um, and it's the same in our lives, our time, talent, and treasure. To come to the point in our life where we say, it's all the Lord's anyways. And I'm no longer going to use it for selfish purposes. I'm going to use it for the service of the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. That's, I mean, I think what St. Paul is saying in the epistle that we have this weekend as well. Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we are living, I mean, there's, I don't want to become apocalyptic here. <laughs> okay, because everybody's running around. It's the end of the world as we know it. The, you know, all these things coming out from Rome and all these, the, the World War Three uh, in 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 uh, the Middle East and all these things. My brothers and sisters, we are living in the kingdom of God here and now. And all of the rest of this is falling away in our lives. It, it, this reality is taking place now in our lives. Um and so we have this, we have this beautiful, this beautiful teaching from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
um, starting with verse 29, right, Annie? Yep. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 29. And it's just so, so appropriate for us as we are now, believe it or not, at the gateway to Lent. I can't believe it. Pasca is so early that actually in the Byzantine lectionary cycle, this Sunday is the first Sunday of preparation for Lent. Wow. And last Sunday, which in our cycle was this called the Sunday after theophany or after the baptism or the way it works out this year, it's like two Sundays, but it's one Sunday, whatever. So uh, um, actually overlapped. And part of our Lenten preparation was got was lost this year. So we begin next this this coming wow. Sunday. So that's that's, that's crazy. Um, yeah. Wow. It is crazy. All right. Well, shall we read St. Paul here? Let's go. Chapter 7, verse 29. Verse 29. I tell you, brothers and sisters, the time is running out. From now on, let those having wives act as not having them. Those weeping as not weeping. Those rejoicing as not rejoicing. Those buying as not owning. Those using the world as not using it fully. For the world in its present form is passing away. Well, thanks be to God. Uh, we're, we're, the, the, uh, this is nicely placed for us, right? With Jonah, with the calling of the apostles, with the calling of our own lives to realize that life of repentance, that life of, a, of kind of re, re-establishing a proper relationship with the things of this world, knowing that the created order is meant for one thing, and that is our communion with God. And now recommitting ourselves to this relationship as the wisdom of the fathers have put before us. Now, I'll leave you with this, that as we prepare for Lent this year, um, uh, and I've used this image of packing the bags many times, and so I'll just leave you with that, that Lent requires preparation. And I encourage you now, not on Ash Wednesday, to start packing your bags. That is to stop, take an account of your life, and make a commitment to your Lenten journey, um, commitment to fasting as the way of the Christian, to prepare ourselves for the bridegroom. Do you want Jesus to be your bridegroom? Do you want Jesus to come and, um, and restore the communion between you and God in your life? Do you want to experience the resurrection and see Christ risen from the dead? Well, Jesus tells us that there's one way to do that, and that is through fasting. And we'll have more to talk about that in, in, the, in, the, in the days to come. And, and maybe we can leave ourselves with a question of whether we are willing to be caught by God. Whether we're willing to become like Jonah and to recommit ourselves to the mission of the Lord, like the apostles who were called in the Sea of Galilee. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.